Okay, for its almost two and a half thousand years of existence in the Buddhist traditions and the practices that those traditions have produced, and one might add that there are many, many traditions within Buddhism, there isn't just one. As I usually say to my students in the university, there's Buddhism, there isn't Buddhism, there's a monolithic entity. There are lots of different forms. But if there's one theme that runs throughout that, which is obviously coming from the historical personage of the Buddha himself, is the idea of mental transformation, what I almost started off with last night, the theme of mental transformation. And what we mean by this, really, is a profound psychological healing. It's been likened, or the Buddha has been likened in many instances to something like a spiritual doctor, and this is the way he's seen within the traditions. In other words, he comes along to identify a malaise that we suffer from, and you heard me going on about this malaise last night, um, the malaise called Dukkha, which has these vast number of terms that can be associated with it, fear being quite a dominant theme of dukkha, and the psychological healing that's to be affected, of course, is the overcoming of this. And as a spiritual doctor, first of all, as with any good physician, whether they're conventional physicians or within the kind of alternative therapies, there has to be a diagnosis of the problem. There has to be a diagnosis of the situation, an identification of what exactly is wrong. It's no good going along to your doctor to have the doctor tell you, well, your nose is alright and your eyes are okay and your legs are alright. Um, what you want to know is actually what is wrong with you in order to affect the healing. Traditionally, and as those of you who've been around Buddhism for a little bit or even just delved into it, we'll come across something called the Four Noble Truths. This is the starting point of all of the explorations within Buddhism, and as one teacher once said to me, really you only have to understand the first two Noble Truths, and that's the whole of Buddhism. And understanding that there is something called Dukkha, and that there is a cause to it. And in a sense, understanding those first two points of what is known as the Four Noble Truths is encapsulating the whole of Buddhist practice. Because everything that issues forth, issues forth from the understanding and how Dukkha is called to the eradication of it. To the eradication of fear and suffering and mental distress and all of the myriad of things that you and I experience in our lives. The enchaining to these various mental states as well. Going back to my opening statement that the Buddhist tradition has been about affecting this mental transformation. And as I said, reiterating something I was saying last night, this is what makes it in a sense quite different from and I would heavily scare quote this religious tradition, other religious traditions, because it has this central psychological focus. And there's a vast repository of profound psychological knowledge in the Buddhist tradition, simply because of it's taken as, a, as its focus, the mind. That the mind is the central focus is very clear from the opening statement of 
probably the most translated work in the whole of Buddhism. It's a small text out of the Pali Canon, which is the traditional repository of Theravada Buddhism, and it's a work called the Dhammapada. In the Dhammapada, the opening statement runs something like this, Mind is the forerunner of all things. With a happy mind, certain effects will follow. With an unhappy mind, certain effects will follow. And in many ways, that world of a happy mind and an unhappy mind are two completely different worlds. So mind, so the world simply isn't out there. It's imprinted constantly with our mental attitude towards it. And so if our mind is affected by certain roots, which creates certain effects and dependent on what those roots are, whether they're wholesome roots or unwholesome roots of conduct and speech and thinking, then the mind will be patterned in certain ways and the world will be patterned in certain ways. So the Buddhist tradition is there to affect this healing. But we need to understand, and a lot of the practices we've been doing today, really, at the beginning practices, are starting to understand the nature of mind. Emphasizing something I emphasized last night, and I do want to keep emphasizing this, is that the Four Noble Truths themselves are not articles of belief, they're not articles of faith. They're tools for exploration. When the Buddha says, that there is dukkha, there is the truth of dukkha, he doesn't say, well, accept it because I say it. He actually says completely the opposite. He says, don't accept it because I say it. Examine it. He uses a metaphor, a simile, in one of the texts where he says, if I hand you a piece of gold, and I say this is gold, what do you do? Do you believe it because I say it? Or you go away as a sensible person would and have it assayed to see really whether it is gold or whether it's just fool's gold. And so, throughout Buddhist tradition, there has always been this emphasis on one's own inquiry. And the Four Noble Truths is the beginning of that inquiry. So when the Buddha says there is Dukkha, it's meant to inspire us to look at our own experience and see whether that is the case for us. Now this is where often I find that the Western translations of this term as suffering, as mentioned last night, are often unhelpful. Because actually a lot of our experience isn't in terms of what we would might, might term profound suffering. It's more in terms of irritation not feeling at home, feeling unsettled about things. Basically not having, as I said again, reiterating something I said last night, not having the world the way we would like it to be. Things are impermanent when we expect them to be permanent. So, Rather than hearing this word suffering, we have to hear it as this kind of multitude of dissatisfaction. We are very dissatisfied beings most of the time. And as a result, we're quite grumpy about it. There's not a lot of happiness 
in that state. There is also, I might add, not a lot of freedom in that state. And taking again, picking up the theme of the weekend, fear, when our lives are patterned by fearful responses, then there is hardly any freedom. There's not much room for manoeuvre. Because actually we're hemmed in by our fears. There's so many things we can't do because we're fearful of it. There's so many places we can't visit because we're fearful of what might happen. And one can mean that literally and metaphorically. Well, what is the opposite of fear? It's obviously fearlessness. And the challenge, and I really do mean this as a profound challenge for all of us, and I'm going to leave this as a question hanging at this stage, is do we have the courage to be free? Do we have the courage to be happy? Because it takes courage. It takes a degree of fearlessness, a dropping of the known. What we know is fear. What we know is anxiety. What we know is dissatisfaction and irritation and grumpiness and all of the other things. I won't keep going on into this litany of, of terms. But that's what we know. That's what we are habituated to. In the Buddha's teaching, he actually makes it very clear that moment by moment we are not in a particularly fortunate state. Um, often this is talked about in terms of rebirth, how we find ourselves in another life. Now we might say, of course, that that can be literal, as it's taken often within the traditions, that we literally are reborn, rebirth occurs, but within the tradition, there is also this great idea that this notion of rebirth is something which is occurring every moment. Every moment we are reborn into a different moment. So when we look back at our lives, no matter how old we are, we can look back at ourselves and say, oh, that's a completely different me from the way I am now. However certain things come through, certain patternings come through, Remember what I was saying last night at Sangsara, this idea of our entrapment, because really what it's talking about psychologically is our entrapment, our feeling of being trapped going round in circles. So within even looking at the idea of psychological rebirth, of finding ourselves in different moments throughout our lifetime, then we will find that patterns will reassert themselves. And if you've ever had that feeling of deja vu about making mistakes, well, it's probably true. <laughs> you know, you're often making the same mistake, not identically, but you're repeating. There is a propensity to repeat. And that is familiar. And that's the unfortunate thing about it. The familiar is what we understand, the familiar is what we hold to, the familiar is that which we grasp after. It's almost like being in an abusive relationship with life and we can't let go of it because we keep holding on to the known. Because there is fear of the unknown. There is fear of the possibility of freedom. 
It's far easier to say, I cannot do, I cannot go, I cannot be, than it is to think of the possibility of being otherwise. And so, these traditions, stemming from the Buddha, throughout all of their manifestations, running through all these different cultures, through India initially, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, Cambodia, China, Tibet, Japan, you know, all of these traditions have this transformation It's affecting to break us away from the entrapment, the chaining to the familiar, into that possibility of freedom. And that possibility of freedom actually is a very profound human possibility. And I think this is what it makes it so, in some senses, remarkable and often quite moving because it talks about achievements of being really human. Now often we can talk about, you know, using a phrase by Nietzsche, we're all human, all too human. And that usually is associated with kind of the negative side of life. But as the and the motivational forces behind the real sense of being human in this Buddhist perspective is the possibility of the development of insight and compassion understanding profoundly the way things are and having a profoundly moved response towards life now Again, I don't want to etymologise with you, but I think it does add a little bit of a dimension, because these words don't translate directly from the original languages. The word in Sanskrit and Pali for this term, compassion, is actually karuna. And karuna is derived, as all are, these words, are, are all of these words, from root, a root. And if you understand what the root is, you understand what the meaning, or the connotations of the actual word are. Now, this is the movement that's talked about in Karuna. It literally means to turn outward and to see the other. And again, if one thinks about that, if it takes one board that for a second, it shows you actually part of our problem. Because actually most of the time we're turned inward, looking at ourselves looking deeply narcissistically in terms of ourselves so that we see our problems, we see our fears, we see our anxieties um, but very rarely do we see the other as having problems, fears and anxieties the world is profoundly solipsistic in that it's our world and this is what we're trying to break free from because the moment we can affect this turning out to see the other, then we are moving and being moved. We come into a situation of possible responsiveness, of actually encountering where we really are, of being in a world with others. Not just human others, but non-human others as well. And hopefully affecting a different relationship through that. Now all of the Buddhist traditions talk about this profound movement, this movement of compassion, 
But this is not a looking down upon. This is not a dispensation from up high. It's a movement onto the level where one is equal with others. Where there's an equality. Where in a sense we share the same problem. It might be individually patterned, but we share the same problem. And the 7th century Buddhist poet Krishnadeva talks about the fact, does it make any sense, he says, to talk about my pain, my anxiety, my fear? Because that is what is around for everybody. Fears and anxieties and pains and unsatisfactoriness and everything else that goes under this term of dukkha. Why does it make any sense to hold on to it as being mine? Because actually it's a shared problem that we have. And there's a humility to that as well. In, even in our suffering state we are narcissistically egotistical. And that's really, in a sense, the profound meaning of narcissism. If we take our own ego, our own image of ourselves to be the correct one, and we hold it on high. So the movement is the movement to break free of the chains which bind us, to patterns of behaviour which are destructive, to patterns of behaviour which isolate us from others. One of the senses I get of often within Western society is of profound loneliness within our society. We can be together but tremendously alone, even when we live in huge conurbations together. In fact, probably is the loneliest place you could possibly be amongst so many others, feeling cut off and alienated and all of the things which are associated often with that type of lifestyle. Traditionally, this movement, psychologically, is depicted as a movement through a number of realms of existence. Now I think these are wonderfully insightful in almost in their picturesque nature within some traditional cultures and for the most ordinary Buddhists within traditional cultures these are places where one can be reborn there are god realms there are hell realms there are animal realms there are realms of jealous gods and there are realms of hungry ghosts and there is a human realm and according to the traditional interpretations of this, it's profoundly difficult to be or to find oneself in a human realm as a destination for rebirth. However, this other interpretation, which I think brings it much more back home to where we are now in a practical sense, is that it's very difficult at this moment to take up one's place in the human with the possibility of insight and compassion of that movement that I talked about. Now these other moves, these other realms, psychological states, can be described very quickly. The godlike realm is the realm of 
those who have inflated egos and believe they have everything and everything is right in their world. You have a realm of jealous gods, which is actually called in Sanskrit Asturia, which actually is derived from a term which means, which basically says the sun doesn't shine on them at all. Um, and it's wonderfully depicted actually in Tibetan iconography is that all the fruits of the wish-fulfilling tree are to be found in the realm of the gods, but the roots are to be found in the realm of the jealous gods. So they want to get to where the gods are. Then, okay, these are kind of mythological, but then you have a realm which we do recognize, which in Buddhism is the animal realm. The animal realm, given, you know, talking about the interpretation of animals from 2,500 years ago, the animal realm is a realm of blind instinct, of concern only with matters of food, procreation, defecation, and everything else. All the profoundly animalistic instincts. Then we have a realm of hungry ghosts, again beautifully depicted in the iconography. Uh, these are figures with enormous bellies, tiny pinhole mouths, and little strangulated necks. But they have an insatiable thirst and hunger. So as you can see what happens, they can never satisfy it. And then you have hell realms. You might think, well, of course, a lot of the traditional religious major religious traditions have hell realms. Absolutely true. Buddhist hell realms are quite different though because nobody judges anybody in the Buddhist hell realm. There's a figure who is usually again depicted in the iconography who holds up a mirror called Yama, who's the god of death. He holds up a mirror and the punishments that are enacted upon those in the hell realm are dependent upon what you see in the mirror. In other words, you are your own sternest critic. Now, it's not, I hope, a major leap of the imagination to see that, of course, these depict very profound psychological states. Godlike realm. Those who are kind of pumped up with ego and have everything. It's a lovely description, actually, in the text where it says, but so when somebody's about to fall out of the godlike realm, um, and they live a lot longer apparently than humans, but they live, but they still, the gods are still within the wheel of rebirth. They still have to be reborn. But when they're about to take out a new rebirth, when their stash of merit that's got them there has run out, then they start to smell, and nobody wants to talk to them. <laughs> I thought that was wonderfully metaphorical for our society. <laughs> so, the realm of the jealous gods can be described as those really who want to get everything. They want to be at the top. They want to have the sort of things that the gods have got. Well, the animal realm, I don't need to go any further into. It's the realm of blind instinct, psychologically. Just doing things, just the really basic things. Hungry ghosts? Well, you've got a realm here, of course, which is desire that can never be satisfied. Actually, the word for craving in, um, that's used for craving in Buddhism, which is one of the major causes of Dukkha, and I'll go into this a little bit further, actually means an unquenchable thirst. A thirst that can never be satisfied whatsoever. Then there is the hell realm. The realm of kind of 
sufferings and depressions and major mental disturbances. <laughs> I was kind of clever clock when I was <laughs> first studying Buddhism back in the uh, very early 70s when I first came in contact with him. I said to a Tibetan teacher who I was studying with, I know people like this. <laughs> and I said, is that the way it is, that these are kind of character types? And he looked at me rather appalled and said, no, that's a picture of you on one day. <laughs> because that's what we're going through. So sometimes we kind of have the puffed up egos of gods, other times we're striving to be godlike. Other times we're mentally down in the depths of depression, fed up with everything. Other times we're kind of just driven by desire, which is unquenchable. Other times we're fairly animalistic. But it does show us, doesn't it, a very profound question. How often, if that is the case of your mind in a day, or even a mind in an hour, let alone a day, how often are you human in that day? How often are you demonstrating insight and compassion into your condition. Insight into the way things are and the compassion is generated by an understanding of the way things are. Now that's the question. If we are trapped inside the circle of Sankara and it's depicted as a wheel, depicted as a wheel which is usually clutched by the god of death, Yama, again, one of the characters who appears in the hell realm, then we're dying continuously. And how often are we being reborn in the human realm? Because it seems a fairly difficult realm to be within. In other words, a fairly difficult psychological state to be human, actually, in this depiction. To actually develop all too often it is easy to, using a bit of Christian terminology, to fall into unexamined ways of behaviour. There's one simple word for this, it's called laziness. We fall because we're lazy. We don't develop effort. And one of the perfections that is put out in one form of Buddhism is the perfection of effort of virya of actually moving with effort into a profound engagement with life when we fall we fall into habitual patterns why I said, and you've probably forgotten it by now, because I've kind of moved on a bit, but I said we don't get off to a very good start in each moment. Each moment in this state of samsara, psychologically, which is why the fears are produced, each moment is full of two things which come with us from our past, which is delusion and habit. Habit has a profound name, which I'm not, I haven't given it to you yet, but it's a word that you will be familiar with, might interpret it differently, but it's a word called karma, which simply means action, that's all. 
People get terribly metaphysical over this word, and it's not. It's actually just a simple word in the languages, karma, to say that you can't be in a world without acting. And every action that you do, even if you sit there doing nothing, has consequences. Every action. If we're in a world, we're in a world which in a sense is a world where we always act. We act in terms of thought, word and deed, body, speech and mind. And we can't help but act. Now, actions are going to have consequences and wholesome actions, it's generally said, will have wholesome consequences and unwholesome actions will have unwholesome consequences. However, we can't predict the exact nature of the consequences. Now, with the delusion that is operative, and I'll say a few words about this, the delusion which is operative is often translated as ignorance as well. The delusion is operative in every moment that we bring to every moment and delusion really literally means a not seeing, a blindness. Remember I talked about sleepwalking yesterday? That we can be sleepwalking through life, not really seeing things. And if we're in that state, then the actions that we're engaged in are unaware actions. We literally don't know what we're doing most of the time. We haven't got a clue. Just as you might be thrashing around in your sleep, and not be aware of it in the slightest until you wake up in the morning and find all the sheets and duvet all jumbled up. It's only when you wake up that you become aware of what's been going on. Equally, if we're in this delusive state, the state actually of unawareness, then we're unaware of what we are doing. We're unaware of the actions we're engaging in, and we're unaware of the consequences we'll give rise to. In our interactions with others, let's put it really back home where it's important. In our interactions with others, if we are unaware, we will cause pain. We will cause hurt. Not necessarily intentionally. There doesn't have to be malice or forethought there. But just unintentionally, through our lack of awareness. Just the odd gesture, the odd flippant remark. You don't know what is going to happen to it. Because remember what I said, we do not know the consequences of an action. We cannot predict how it might snowball out of control. There is no way of discerning what's going to happen. So, one of the tasks in kind of breaking ourselves and moving into a free space and moving into the possibility of happiness is to start to become aware. And we start with practices like summertime, practices like the simple Vipassana practices that we've done today, by just being aware of things which you don't normally notice. Cultivation practice or meditation practice really in this kind of environment, sitting on cushions, is a controlled experiment. Really. And I think the one word that works really well in English, we call it practice. And that's what we're doing. We are practicing for doing the real thing. 
You know, the real thing takes place out there in the world. That's when you blow it. Yeah. Very easy to feel calm <laughs> and relaxed in an environment like this. You might get irritated by the crows, but that's about most of it. <laughs> or the food arrives a few minutes late. I mean, these, these, these are the depths of your problems in these situations. <laughs> Think about it in terms of what happens when you go out into the ordinary world. There are so many things impinging on you, automatically. When you move back into your home environment with your families and your friends and your jobs and everything else, then it's really, really easy to blow it, to let it go. So, it becomes important what you do here but the real test is out there. There used to be a meditation teacher friend of mine who lived in Sri Lanka, who died a few years ago, who used to run a meditation center, I mean, you think this is isolated, we're really isolated, it had no running water, no electricity, and it was right up in the hill in the coffee tea planting areas in Sri Lanka. And people used to stay for months, you can stay for a very, very long period of time, the center still exists, by the way. And after about two or three months of somebody being there, he would often call them into his room and say, feeling calm, feeling relaxed, huh? And if they answered in the affirmative, he used to say, well, we go to Candy, <laughs> which was the town, the local town, the nearest town. Candy is like any Asian city. If you've ever been to an Asian city, it's controlled chaos. Well, actually, it's not controlled chaos. It's uncontrolled chaos, actually. Um, it somehow functions, that's what I mean. Um, but it is pretty chaotic. If you can keep your calm and your cool there, you've achieved something. Now that's the real test. And I say that because it's really important in what we're doing. We can get terribly, terribly pious and terribly dissociated from what's going on out there. That becomes the test. That becomes the litmus test of whether you really understood and experience something here. Now, if it does go, I might say, well, that just shows you have to keep doing the practice in this controlled experiment. Because this controlled experiment is really, how well can I stay focused with the jumbles of my own mind? How well can I gain insight into whether just a simple sensation is either experienced as pleasant or unpleasant, watching it change, how can I look, the last practice we did today, can I look and really see impermanence in my own mind? Yeah, we see impermanence, don't we, until that depressive thought or that miserable thought or that fear comes up and it becomes all too real and permanent. And so what we're really doing is practicing to see that. To see actually that it is impermanent, that what's going on in the mind is transitory. It's evanescent. And that's its beauty, actually. In some ways, we despoil the beauty of the mind by making it into a thing. We turn it into something static when it's something dynamic. We turn life into something static when life is dynamic. One way we do this is through 
our delusive fantasies about the way things are. We, for example, see things as permanent, and perhaps we should be seeing them as impermanent. I keep going on about this, but this is really important. Something affects us all. In our relationships, in our life, as, again, I quote the poet Rilke, he says, we are in this world forever taking leave. Only we don't actually do that, do we? Unless it's forced upon us. So we try to solidify, we try to attach ourselves and hold on. Again, the word for attachment in Pali and Sanskrit literally means a grasp that won't let go at all. It's kind of like trying to prise the fingers off something. It's that tight a grasp. And of course, attachment leads to fear. When we have attachment, it's the root for all of our fears. Particularly in profound imperialistic society like ours. We are driven by this thirst because there is this sense of, of a vacuum in our being which we try to fill up. And it might be material objects, that's the most obvious example. In our society, we see this continuously. This word tanha, Krishna, this unquenchable thirst. Have you ever been gulled into this full sense of security in telling yourself this little story that goes something like this? If only I had, and I'll leave you to mark the spot, I would be happy. If only I was with, I would be happy. Well, I don't know if you ever got the thing that X marks the spot, whether you've got the person, the thing, or whatever, and you generally find good pleasure there, yeah, no doubt about it, often. But happiness probably lasts about three seconds until you're off on to the next thing that says, if only I had, I'd be happy. And so it's a never-ending search. It's something which as an unquenchable thirst can never be satisfied. So when we're driven by craving, we're driven in this compulsive fashion. If I was making a quick statement, in a sense we're all compulsive neurotics. <laughs> you know, we are driven in this way to keep searching for things which cannot produce what we require. But, we don't want to let go of them either. So coming back to the problem that I said is part of the root cause, this delusion, this ignorance, actually has a positive content. It's positively not wanting to know, really, the way things are. In other words, you're entrapped within a delusion that you don't actually want to relinquish because it's the known, it's the familiar, again. From time to time, we have it foisted on us when reality kind of erupts through it. And often, 
and sadly this is the case, it's often the case in terms of tragedy and illness and sickness, when it's foisted upon us that things are not permanent, that we are mortal, and that change is written into life, into the world. That's often a very hard learning experience, and it does change people profoundly. But before that can ha- before that happens, we do have the opportunity to start to reorientate ourselves, to see actually that the things that we think are going to produce happiness will not give us happiness. They will not produce. <coughs> they will give us pleasure, and there is nothing wrong with pleasure. There is nothing wrong with it, but it's not permanent. It will change. It will. Move away again. As I'm saying, we're often aware that we're undergoing something pleasurable when it's in the decline. Yeah. So, if we want true happiness, we have to find it in something which will produce it, not in something that won't produce it. And so, most of our search is invested in things which will not produce it. However, we won't relinquish our grasp on that thing. We will continue to think that, you know, just take material objects as the most obvious ones, are going to produce happiness for us. And so we accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and often get more and more miserable. And we get fearful because we're now frightened that we might lose what we've accumulated. But there is no security. You know, despite the vast insurance policies we have in the West, we try and shore ourselves up against loss. They don't do that. They cannot do it. There is no security. If we try to erect a secure stronghold, we are doing so on shifting the sand. Yeah, the walls might stay up for a certain period of time, but then they will fall flat because the sand stands up to shift. Because that is naturally written in to the way things are. Now, as you can see here, there is a, almost a contract for disappointment. <laughs> a guaranteed contract that you will be disappointed and you will be miserable and you will be unhappy. And you will be fearful. Again and again and again and again. And I was always profoundly struck by a comment that Lawrence Durrell once made about in general history. This is the author, Lawrence Durrell. And I thought this was absolutely true of our own personal history. Because he said that the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. Very rarely do we learn anything from our own personal mistakes. We continue to repeat them, albeit in slightly different fashion, but we continue to repeat them. We continue to invest the search for happiness, peace, contentment in things which will not produce them. However, we have this fear written into the contract that we will lose what we have accumulated. And we get annoyed when we lose what we have accumulated. Now, there's nothing wrong with possessions. I don't suggest you all collect your begging bowls at the door and shave your head. But it's the relationship we have with the things that we own and possess. In the West, we do own lots of things. 
But what relationship do we have with them? What relationship do we have with others when we turn them into things as well through attachment? Because then we're also fearful of losing too. And we engage in this profoundly objectifying relationship which is not really about love, it's about attachment. It's about, again, the familiar. Now, I don't wish to sound a cynic, but I think these are the sort of things that we all have to examine in our own lives. There's no absolute right, there's no absolute wrong. We have to examine our relationship with everything. Because if attachment is written into it, then we will suffer. We will have pain. Now, let me correct something that's often a misperception about all of this because there is the idea, of course, that if you're not attached, and this is profoundly Western logic, by the way, if you're not attached, well, what's the opposite? Well, you're going to be detached. As if you somehow take a step back out of life and you're just looking at it with this cold, calculating gaze. Wrong. That's not the way. That's Western logic. It's bipolar thinking, basically. Either it's this or it's that. Strange as it might sound, the opposite to attachment in Buddhist practice is real engagement. Of really engaging with what is. Real love, real feeling for another is about letting be about letting go. If you really love another, you can let them go. In attachment, we hold on. We cause pain for ourselves and we cause pain for the others. That doesn't mean you don't care, and I touched on this last night. The complete opposite of being you don't care. You care so much that you can let somebody go. Or let something go. It doesn't have to be a person. Because remember, I'm talking about all of our relationships in this world. In this movement of letting go, then we come into a fearless relationship with things and people. Whereas most of our relations with world and others is a profoundly fearful relationship. So really, the practice of Buddhism is practicing where we are already. Subscribe to, sign up to. It's a way of approaching where we already are. We're trying to do nothing other than become who we already are and be where we already are. Now what I mean by that is if we're in a world of change, of transient, evanescence and movement, then let's be in that world and be with it rather than resisting it and holding on in attachment. If we know certain things will not produce sukha, which is happiness, a blissful way of being, a contented way of being in the world, but will produce dukkha, let them go. 
Again, the little thing I mentioned last night. The practice of Buddhism is the practice of letting go, not not caring. It's the practice of letting go. The practice of relinquishing. <coughs> also, the important one, and perhaps I'll kind of wrap this up tomorrow in the final talk, just before we finish the retreat. It's understanding the real nature of ourselves, not as things, but as processes, not as fixed entities, something that can change, and something that can develop, and this is really, really important. And in fact, in early Buddhism, it was seen as a path unto itself. And it's really over the history of Buddhism that the insight or wisdom development has been predominant, but it's compassion. Kindness. Kindness was seen as a path to liberation in its own right in early, early Buddhism. The practice of kindness itself was a way of seeing the world. Remember that turning outward that I talked about? It's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of knowing the world. It's literally the eye of compassion that sees the world in such a way that it can't help but be moved by what it sees, and to be moved into responsiveness, not with the thought of an ego which says, I am being compassionate, or I am being kind, because when those words I creep in, and that self-reflexive consciousness creeps in, then you're not being it. You might be engaging that behaviour, but you're not it. When real compassion, or real openness of the heart in terms of kindness develops, there is a kind of clearing of ourselves, a clearing of our own junk, an emptying of that junk, and a movement towards the other person. Now that's, in a sense, the goal, and that's the task. The kind of responsiveness that's generated by that is a free responsiveness. It's not a habit. It's not a pattern. It's not something that's being built up through delusion. But it's a free responsiveness to what is actually there. If somebody requires something, then I will open myself to it and be able to deliver it, not out of kind of cognitive thinking, but out of a, a knowing what is needed. And that, in a sense, is the task to move into that open, free, responsive space. Now, it is said, and I shall finish here, it is said, and I think it's a wonderful image, if nothing else, and it derives from Chinese Buddhism. It says, when the Buddha walked through the world, he walked with bliss bestowing hands. And that's a lovely image of that movement through the world of kindness and compassion and a movement through the world which is not aggressive and angry and irritated and fearful but the absolute opposite. Where there is fear there can be no real love no real compassion. It doesn't say you can't engage in those acts but it's not really deeply rooted so that is the task. 
Okay, I shall cease there. I'm trying to open to questions, discussions, comments even. No, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just confused the Freedom within the context of which I'm speaking has a very specific meaning. It means freedom from the conditioned responses that we are normally driven to. So it's freedom from conditioning. That's what it means. Now that's not a kind of vacuous sense of freedom, of the freedom to do anything I like. It's actually freedom within a profound discipline. Because genuine freedom only actually comes from within, for example, a genuine sense of ethics and morals, which is a discipline itself. So it's not a kind of a, a kind of nebulous freedom to do anything. Yeah. So that's very specific to Buddhism. It's a freedom from conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, that is a concept which you do find in Tibetan Buddhism in particular, the notion of power. Um, and really, it's, it's, well, it's actually a translation of Viria again, it means effort. It means the kind of powerful effort that's required. In other words, there's a trinity in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism in particular, which is not just, you know, I'll give the old translation, wisdom and compassion are usually the two which are pushed to the forefront. But it's the recognition that for there to be insight or wisdom and compassion, there has to be a force behind it. It can't be just... Well, compassion can't just simply be gooey. <laughs> Put it that way, really, really kind of sloppy. Insight can't be just, oh yes, there's the way things are. It's driven. It has a powerful energy behind it. And that's the development of energy. So in other words, that compassion itself becomes dynamic. It becomes a dynamic force in the world. And you see this particularly represented in Tibetan Buddhism because although I don't particularly want to, I want to go into it too much here, they have this notion of wrathful and peaceful deities. You know, the wrathful aspect is particularly the power-driven aspect. And you see, I was particularly, I, when I was very young and associated with Tibetan Buddhism, I used to look at these things, you know, be this sort of six-armed, blood-dripping monster with a garland of skulls surrounded by flames. One of the teachers goes, said, that's an image of compassion. <laughs> and you'd go, pardon? <laughs> And he said, well, you know, compassion isn't just all 
simple, kind act. Sometimes compassion has to take a very dynamic form. It has to be very powerful. The image that often springs to mind and often given in these contexts is, you know, to stop a child from hurting itself, you might have to shout at it. But it's not done out of hatred. It's not done out of aggression. It's done out of compassion to stop some a child from hurting itself. That's the power dimension. That's what's coming through. Often there's a picture of Buddhism, and I think the Tibetan version is slightly corrective to this, of it all being kind of terribly quiescent, terribly quiet. And it's not. It's about acting in the world. Hopefully I've stressed this to you. It's about acting in the world, being in the world, being in a different way. You have two choices in Buddhism. And, you know, you can either be in the world sangsaring, <laughs> in other words, going through all this conditioned stuff and producing pretty well the same results again and again and again, just going round and round in circles, or you can be nirvanaing, which is the complete opposite. Nirvanaing, though, is still active. You know, the Buddha, you know, attained in the traditional account nirvana making it sound like something to do with the Buddhist heaven. And it's not. Nirvana is a way of being. It's a, it's a verb, not a noun, in the original language. So we are nirvanaing. It's about the best thing, closest we can get to it in English. And that nirvanaing is an act, acting, and it's driven, in a sense, by power. It's driven by this force or this energy. So when the Buddha nirvana. What does he do? He doesn't go to some Buddhist heaven. He stays in the world for 45 years teaching. Continuously, up until his death. Yeah, and that's the power dimension that's coming through. Some Buddhist traditions are highly analytic, highly intellectual. Um, the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism in which I was trained, I'll just give you an example, in which I was trained, we had to debate analytically for six hours minimum a day. Just debating, actually analysing, chopping away. But the purpose was to end up in letting go. In other words, to take us into places where the rational mind actually has no purchase over. So in a sense, it's wearing it out. Those of you who are familiar with forms of Zen Buddhism, in Rinzai Zen, for example, which is one of the uh, sects of Zen Buddhism, they use a, 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 they use a tool called a koan, which is a kind of un- insoluble problem. And for years and years and years, you'll be given this koan, initially, to start off with, and for years and years and years, you keep going to your teacher, 
And it might be the classic one, which probably everybody's heard, but what is the sound of one hand clapping? You know, that's the classic one. And you'll go to your teacher and you'll give a response and your teacher goes, no, no, go away again. Come back again, go away. <laughs> you haven't got it. And it'll go on for years until basically that analytic mind gives up. Because it can't answer it. It can't answer it rationally. There's no way of answering it. So it's a way of wearing that mind out. Now I think this is particularly opposite for us in the West because I think as you rightly say, we do have a long history of all of this. You can't suddenly abandon your brain at the meditation room door. <laughs> you know, we don't want to either. And I think it's very important because remember what I've been saying, we have to think about the teaching too. We can't just say, oh yeah, I believe now in Dukkha. <laughs> now, it's not a belief, it's something you have to actually look at, look at it in all of its ramifications and the dimensions of your life. So that analytic brain is still needed, but it won't take us all the way. That's the important element of it. Now for some people, that might not be a problem. They might not think that way at all. Therefore other meditation practices and other forms of Buddhism become okay. You know, there are other ways. So it's not, I don't think there is this big East-West divide that people make out. You know, for example, there are great mystical traditions in the West. And there are great analytic, rational traditions in India and in the East for example. I mean, so much so that when Alexander the Great first encountered Indians, he called them the naked philosophers. You know, this is um, what he recognised as philosophy, rational thinking. Yeah. However, that won't take us all away. And that's the important dimension, of, that's the important thing to remember. It will take us so far. But ultimately, we have to experience that's what's really important. It's experiencing. Now, to get to that place, we might have to do some thinking, but let's not confuse the thinking with the experience. Because remember what I was saying last night. I can think, and I can understand, and I can analyse impermanence, but I don't really understand it because I don't live it. That's when it becomes the experience, when you can live it. That's when you put the two together. Normally, they're kind of gulfs apart. There's a huge split between what our rational minds understand and what our emotions understand. Now actually, the teachings themselves should reach us on that emotional level as well as the rational level. That's if we allow it. That's if we allow it. That's right. I mean, there's a very, I was always very struck by... Um, a particular Tibetan text which I was reading by a very great teacher within the Tibetan tradition who lived in the 15th century. And he actually put it at the forefront of this text, and it was highly complicated and really difficult, very analytic. He said, if you have read this text and the hairs on the back of your neck have not stood up, then you haven't understood it. Because that's real understanding, isn't it? When somebody hits you, really. That's when it really becomes an experience. And so the important dimension, as I keep stressing, is experience, experience. That process of debate I was talking about that I personally have to engage in for quite a number of years, they called turning, turning reasoning into reality. That was the actual Tibetan phrase for it. Turning reasoning into reality. To move from just the reasoning to becoming an experience. 
Yes, true. But it's a, you know, the learning experience, this is the difference actually. We in the West are very impatient. Very, very impatient. The difference is that in the East they will take the learning experience as being a lot longer process. A lot longer process. I'll give you an example from my own experience. The particular aspect of, or dimension of Buddhism which I studied in the monastery was part of a three and a half year course. This is one aspect, it was one text we studied for three and a half years and debated every day for three and a half years. With my undergraduate students at university, I do it in one two hour session. <laughs> <laughs> That shows you the difference in the learning process. <laughs> Sorry, there's another question. I just want to appreciate the, um, the, the, the way that the, a guy has the teachings always in the context of human relationship. And in my own life and my own community where I live, it's very evident that there's a massive crisis in this culture at the moment in the context of adult relationships. A lot of long-term relationships breaking down, a lot of pain, um, and I really appreciate the huge relevance of this teaching in the context of this whole issue of being finding a way of coming into a place where one can respond rather than react. Mm. And uh, I find that very inspiring. That, uh, the, the way that's put across here by, by, by the including yourself and the different teachers. It, it feels hugely relevant. Well, I think it has to be. It has to be. But, I mean, if, if it has no relevance to what is actually happening in our lives, forget it. Mm. I wouldn't be sitting here doing this with you if it had no relevance. Buddhism would just be a historical artifact if it had no relevance to what actually goes on in our lives. I think the, the thing that makes it span the two and a half thousand years and make it as relevant from that period to our period is it's talking about our psychology. You know, that's what I meant by the profound psychological insight that Buddhist practice and the Buddhist traditions offer here. Now, that it has to be relevant in our daily life is absolutely vital again because otherwise, if it's just a vague kind of oriental hothouse flower that needs to be kept in very special places, then again, forget it. It'll just wither and die. Eventually, it's got to take, if it's going to take root here at all, it's going to take root in terms of our own problems and our own culture. Now, if I'm kind of responding to what you just said, I think one of the, one of the problems that I see within Western culture is of a profound nihilism within our culture, a loss of meaning here. There's a search for it, but people are misplacing it. No. That you know the fact that we do have our problems with drugs and alcohol abuse and depression and all these things are indicative of that loss of meaning. They, people are still searching for it, but they're misplacing their search. Yeah. Everybody, in a sense, I mean, as the Dalai Lama always likes to stress, and most teachers within Buddhism stress, you know, most beings are good and they want happiness. We're just not very good at it. That's all. We're actually finding it. We're not very good at finding peace or happiness. We look for it in the wrong places. We look for it in you know, material things. We look for it in attachments. 
to people. Um, and we try and we try and invest them with meaning, but something goes wrong because they're not stable. They break up, you know. Relationships break up, and then that creates all sorts of pain and problems. And material objects, unfortunately, do not stay around. Yeah. Much to our annoyance, a lot of the time, don't they? They break down. Actually, the um, ghost story writer M. R. James had a wonderful phrase. He called it the malice of inanimate objects. <laughs> <laughs> now, they're always out to make you annoyed. Aren't they? But perhaps they wouldn't break down so much if. I think this is particularly true in terms of human relationships, the over-attachment, the over-investment of expecting something or somebody to be something for you. It's actually not about them, it's about you. And so it's operated from a profoundly egotistical point of view. Now that they differ from you can be a source of annoyance. <laughs> Have you have Sorry? But that's not often the way it happens, is it? We actually want to love ourselves through somebody else. That is the cause of that's right. But it's not easy to love somebody else. It's also gratifying. Yes, and love in an attachment form, not in a real form. And we often want that other to be reflective of ourselves. The other person to just simply reflect, to have the same taste. Difference is a big problem, if you've ever noticed. <laughs> a huge problem in, in personal relationships. Yeah. It's threatening. <laughs> Well, I think it depends on what the condition is. And remember all of these kind of diagnoses of vast umbrella terms anyway, which take no account of individuals and individual responses. You know, if you talk about something like psychosis, you're talking about a vast spectrum, you know, from mild psychosis to autism, basically. When you're talking about neurosis, you can talk about a vast spectrum as well. So it depends on where you are within it. Now, I think certainly in... You heard me say last night, you know, kind of we're all neurotics in a way. Um, in the neurotic end of the spectrum, I don't think it's a real problem. Any of these practices can be profoundly helpful. Not immediately, and sometimes actually, you've possibly found, those you've been doing meditation for a little while, it can actually make things worse, because you're suddenly a lot more aware of what's going on. So in other words, instead of one problem, you've now got five. <laughs> or six, or ten, or twenty, or whatever. 
Um, and you become aware of that, and then it starts to calm down, and you can see the things much more discreetly. And that can help a lot. Um, but practice regularly. It has to be practiced regularly. It can't be just just um, dip into retreats and things like that. It has to be on a regular, regular basis. On the neurotic end of the spectrum, it's still not too much of a problem as well because talking about the lack of any solid sense of self, really, isn't quite so threatening as it would be to somebody who perhaps has a very fragile sense of self in the first place, which might be rather psychotic. That other practices might be appropriate, like walking practices might be useful. But I'm really hedging it because I wouldn't want to overgeneralize. I think it depends on the individual. I mean, out of my own experience, I know somebody who's suffered from psychosis for many years and basically has given up all medication because of practicing meditation. And I've known neurotics who found it profoundly difficult. You know, so it really has to be individual. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that particular, that particular program is about stress reduction and pain reduction as well for people with long-term pain. Because obviously, we say something like long-term pain phenomena, it's often our mental attitude towards the pain, rather than the pain itself, which is the real problem, because often there's resentment about it, clinging to it, holding to it, all those sorts of things. So yes, they are, develop- they are developing this, this whole program. There is, for example, in this area, you have uh, Karuna, which is a, a, um, an institute up on the moors, which has actually developed a psychotherapy, which is based on Buddhist principles as well. So there are ways of developing it. Still, personally, I still think they're in their infancy. And what I would actually say, perhaps in slightly contentiously I actually think that the practice of Buddhism is far greater than therapy because it's about something far more profound ultimately that it can be therapeutic in the course of what it's aiming at I think is all to the good and for the benefit of individuals but ultimately it's not simply reducible to a therapy you know, although it has those dimensions it is actually about liberating oneself from conditioning freeing oneself from being driven by certain forces. Yeah. If one wants to call that a therapy, well, I don't I suppose have a major argument with that. But ultimately it's not therapy really as we understand it in the West. I think that's different. And, and we, by 
by evoking a quality of volition, I, I have a sense of really evoking a sense of self uh, at one level. Mm-hmm. So it, seems to, it seems to lead to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels problematic given the context of practice, which is sort of loosening that up. So there seems to be, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's possibly, I mean, there are two problems that we suffer from in, in um, meditative practice which is sometimes being too lax and over-strenuous. And what happens sometimes with the over-strenuous is we do exactly that. We end up pushing too hard, almost not holding the practice with the right degree of tension. And as you know, for something to, to work properly, there's got to be the right degree of tension within it. It can't be too lax and it can't be too tight. If we strive too hard, we can end up reinforcing the sense of self. If we strive too little, we just fall asleep basically. It's kind of nambulism again. So it's getting that right degree, and that's perhaps what you're still grappling with, is actually finding this right degree of holding the object, where, we, you know, where it's just basically a movement, a very gentle movement. And that's why I've tended to stress the word, be gentle, be kind in this movement. It's not forcing oneself back to the object, because that really reinforces that I am doing it. It's noting the drifting, seeing what's going on, and then just bringing yourself gently back. So it's actually, in terms of the kindness you know, that's been mentioned on a number of occasions, being kind towards ourselves, actually the whole meditation practice of working with an object is actually being kind to ourselves. Yeah, if we're with it, fine, with the, with the breath or whatever the object might be. If we're not with it, fine. Yeah, it's just that gentle movement between the two poles. That's all. I think I'm talking about it at quite a, gentle, at a subtle level. Right. Um, at that level, uh, where, where the choice of awareness sort of rises, arises, and there's, uh, there's awareness of that. Yeah, there is a there's major different sensitive. I mean, calming practice is a preliminary practice in most of the traditions. There are some traditions that vary slightly from that. So the kind of samatha practices that we're doing with working with an object are there for a specific thing. So it doesn't really matter at this stage whether one is invoking a degree of evolution or not. Because it's trying to create a specific effect, which is to have a mind which can reflect things a little bit more clearly than they do. The choice of awareness obviously is allowing whatever is arising to arise. That's all. That can still be there, for example, I mean, Anapanasati, which is mindfulness of breathing or awareness of breathing, is both interestingly a samatha practice and a vipassana practice. So it depends on where you put the emphasis. In just allowing the breath to arise, seeing its qualities, its impermanence, its vipassana. Just watching it as an object is samatha. So it's both. So then you could switch from one to the other during the course of the meditation. Are there is not a word. It's a, you often see Buddhism does not use soul language at all. The actual term that is, in a sense, being denied is a term which is within the Indian tradition known as Atma, which is a very strong concept in Hinduism and really means the essential self of the person, which is a fixed and abiding entity and doesn't change. Now, if it has resonances with soul, that's because of the peculiarities of language. But Buddhism doesn't specifically use, say, the soul language that Christianity would use. 
in fact it denies that there is a fixed, abiding, unchanging self. And they talk about anatman, which actually is not self within it. Now that doesn't mean you don't exist, or there isn't something going on which we will label self, but it means that it's understanding again the correct relationship with this process. So rather than a thing which is unchanging, we now have lots of factors which are interrelated, which are actually a process. Um, but they don't use whole language, you know, except loosely. knowing when to act. That's the wisdom, that's the insight, isn't it? Knowing when you can act. It's not to say that we can't act, in fact we have to act. That's what I was saying about karma, we're in a world where we, where we have to act. With blindness we will act blindly. Through delusion we will act blindly. With insight, hopefully, we'll act awarely. Now that doesn't mean, for example, um, if you see great persecution and you could do something about it, you sit back and say, oh, I'm not going to affect it because ultimately it's going to change and everything will come out okay, or whatever will be, will be, case there are, there are, you know, that sort of stuff. That, that's not the way. There's something called skill in means in Buddhism, which is knowing when to appropriately intervene. But one doesn't intervene out of hatred. One doesn't intervene out of aversion. One intervenes out of the wellspring of compassion. To save, to help others for example. So it's not that kind of quiescence. Again, I think that's a, a, a misunderstanding when we get that of Buddhism, which it kind of simply sits back and lets things be. Now, most of our book actually is not about big things, is it? I mean, we might have that as a kind of background, but most of it's like little things. You know, I might be sitting here and thinking, well, actually I prefer to be in bed. <laughs> you know, something like that. It's the little things, wishing things were otherwise. And actually what it builds up is, is fighting it, when there's no need to fight. Now certain things we might need to deal with, but most of the time we're resisting what we don't need to resist. Almost like adolescence, continuously. Resisting and fighting what doesn't need to be fighted or resisted. At all. But does that kind of help? Okay, just one more. Are you connected with the university which does the distance learning and online courses? Yes, I write it. <laughs> 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 you want to know even more? <laughs> yes, I have connections to the university. That one in Bristol where I teach. Yeah. Um, Right. 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 Right.
I think it does matter actually, yeah. So it's, it's um, we're spoiled for choice in the West. Unlike if you were born in a traditional Buddhist culture, you'd get the one form of Buddhism or perhaps two or three and therefore be restricted in terms of what you're exposed to. We're spoiled for choice in the West. If you find something works for you and you feel comfortable with it, stick with it. That's what I'd say. I mean, I do this to students who come to Sharpen. Um, who always, we have this hankering, don't we, after the, the, the next better practice or the next more esoteric practice. You know, we always want to get ahead and have the next, you know, it's like having the Rolls Royce instead of the Mini, you know, in terms of practices. Um, but if you find one works, stick with it. If it's very simple, I mean, I say keep it simple. If, my, if I have a rubric about practice, it's keep it simple. Uh, and don't get yourself too complicated in terms of the amount of practices you do. You get exposed to things and you know, during retreats like this, obviously I try to expose people to varying practices. Um, but ultimately, stick with something that works for you and you find simple. Then if you have exposure to teachers, then check with them to see where you move on to next. Because they check it against their experience of their own practice. And that's always useful. But, you know, keep swapping practices can be actually problematic. Because you never stabilise in one. You never find stability in one. Well, if you go to a group, it's always good to go to groups because you get the support of obviously being with the community, practice what they're doing, but when you're doing at home, do what you do. Well, what what works in the sense of if you've had a degree, even in very small amounts, say it's a hamilton practice of feeling calm for a few minutes. If you find the object, like the breath, a natural one to be with, then be with that. I mean, just to complicate matters more, you know, in the Theravada tradition, they talk about 40 different objects that one can take as a meditation, depending on your character type. Whether you're a greed type, an aversion type, and so on and so forth, you know, and you decide. But actually, mindfulness of breathing is useful for all types. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I mean by does it work for you? Are you feeling comfortable with it? Does it feel natural? Are you not forcing? At this stage, when you're perhaps for most of us getting into meditation practice, then it's good to stick with something simple, something which is there within most of the traditions as well. Okay, I'm actually going to draw it to a close now because it's getting too late. Uh, because I think we ought to do five minutes at least of sitting to quieten the mind down after all this talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.